Well, we're picking back up this morning in our slow walk through one of the longest and densest books of the Bible, and that's the book of Genesis. Uh, Where we last left off, God had just called Abraham and had begun to make his people out of Abraham. We'll be in Genesis 12 this morning. You can turn your Bibles there. We took a little break for Christmas, and then Paul preached for a little bit, and we're back in the same text. Uh, What we learned there in that story where God calls Abram uh, was that God's call to him has a lot to teach us about God's call to us. In fact, so much that we couldn't possibly cram it all into one sermon, and so we're back in the very same text today to learn more things about our calling that Abram's calling teaches us, and we will probably be back in the very same spot next week as well. What I am praying this does for all of us, I'll just remind you, is, you know, for those of you that have been following Jesus for a little time or a long time, I hope he just refreshes your appreciation for the calling he put on your life, gives you a deeper understanding of it, and helps you to follow that calling more faithfully. And there are some of you here, surely, who have not responded to God's call in your life. He is reaching out to you, calling you just as real as someone calling you on the phone saying, come and follow me, and you haven't answered. And I pray that this may be even the occasion where you understand just what that means and you turn from everything and follow Jesus. Uh, Let me give you the backstory here. Abram is living with his father in the nation that will become Babylon, uh, which is a symbol in the Bible for the world's nations and for worldliness, even for the wickedness of the nations and the world. He's living among them just like anybody else. And so in some ways, he's like you and I, just living among one of the world's nations, kind of living a lot like them, uh, just going about life without God in his life at that point, as all of us were and some of us still are. Couple of things different about him though. One thing that you may not share in common with him is that he's on one hand advanced in years and on another hand his wife has been barren for their whole life and so they have no children together. And so he's toward the end of his life looking back and probably figuring out what he is going to do about an heir and inheritance. Who's going to get all of his stuff when he passes on? He doesn't have a son to hand it on to. That's some of the tension in his life. But everything changes in one moment. And that is when God reaches out to him and calls him. Uh, The simple command and a simple promise made to him. And what I want to make sure that we all understand very strongly before we even get into it is that with the same force God is calling you today in the reading of this word and the hearing of this sermon, he is calling you to come and follow him as well. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, we read of the call that God gives to Abraham and how he responds. Here's what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Morah. And now the Canaanite was then in the land. 
the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord which had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. That's the call God gives to him. That is how he responds. Now, before I go into some details about what that means for God's calling in your life, let me just, let me just clarify what God is calling you to. Uh, the scripture says in the book of Acts that in these days, God calls men everywhere to repent. He means men, women, everybody. Uh, in this age, from the resurrection of Jesus to the return of Jesus, this is the time when the call is extended to you to turn from everything that you are, everything that you do, to follow Jesus. So turn from whatever you're worshiping to worship Jesus. Turn from whatever you're chasing after to chase after Jesus. Turn from whatever you trust in to trust in Jesus. And what the book of John says is that by believing in him, the reason that whole book was written is so that we would believe in him. Uh, and by believing in him, we might have life in his name. The promise given to those who would turn and place their faith in Jesus Christ is eternal life forever with him. Instead of condemnation for sin, it is forgiveness and life forever. So Jesus just reaches out to you with the words, come and follow me, to spend the rest of your life in trust of him, following him. That's the call that is made to you right now and every day for the rest of your life. Uh, here are a few things that God's call to Abram shows you about that call. If you want to know a little more about it, we can probe into the story and find a few things. First, Though the general call to trust and follow Jesus uh, is very clear, uh, one of the neat things about it is that the specifics are not clear when the call is made. Uh, we can see that even in Abram's calling first, then we'll talk about ours. Uh, look with me again at verse 1, and I just want to show you just, just how unclear the calling is at first with what the Lord says to him. Uh, he says in verse 1, "'Go forth from your country and from your relatives.'" And from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, if you're Abram there and you don't know how this story ends, or if you're even a reader going through the story for the first time, you don't have enough information to know where God is calling him to. He just says, basically, I'll show you when we get there. Like, get up and leave it all and just go to a generic place that I am going to show you when we get there. And that is very much what it is like to receive a call to follow Jesus for us as well. We do not know where he is going to lead us. We don't know the details of the calling. He knows just what he intends to do with us, uh, but we do not. And so in some ways, calling, uh, following him is indeed answering a call into the unknown, uh, a call that takes great faith to follow because you've got to trust him not knowing where you're going. This would be like, for instance, if right now in the middle of the worship service, somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, I want to show you something, come follow me, and they didn't tell you where they were going, right in the middle of everything. How much do you trust that person? 
Well, you're about to find out because if it's your spouse or somebody you really trust, you might be like, okay, that's kind of weird, but I, sure, I'll go, you know, where, wherever we're going. Total stranger, like, no, like you're not going to trust somebody that just taps you on the shoulder and says, come follow me, I have something to show you. So this is a great test then of Abram's faith early on when God just says, leave it all and go to a place where I'll show you. And Hebrews 11 verse 8 says indeed that by faith he went out not knowing where he was going, right? With no knowledge of where he's going. God's call to you to turn and trust Jesus is the very same way. It takes faith in part because you don't fully know where he is going to call you. You know some of the details, but you don't know them all. Now, here are two ways that this kind of shows up in people's lives. And if you're considering following Jesus, these are probably both realities for you. First, very few people are experts in biblical ethics the day they come to Jesus, right? You don't know everything about what the Bible says about how to live for Jesus and this and that. You're just, you're just not that familiar with it when you first come to Christ. And so you're coming to him knowing that there is some kind of morality to this, like he does expect things of his followers, but you don't totally know what that is. And so it's not uncommon for people who are considering following Jesus to ask like, well, do I have to stop doing this or do, do I have to do that? You know, all kinds of questions that you might have about, well, what are the rules like? What is following Jesus really like? I don't know. Uh, and there are answers to those in the Bible. Uh, and it's good to count the cost, but the overall answer is uh, they become clearer in time and you just kind of have to trust and follow him and believe that whatever his ways are that you don't yet understand, those ways are all good and he's worth following. So if that's you, you know, if you're kind of weighing the cost right now, um, I just want to say to you, it's good to count the cost. It's not bad that you're asking those questions. Uh, it's not bad for an engaged couple, for instance, uh, to both be considering to come to Jesus and just asking flat out, hey, do we have to stop sleeping together if we want to follow Jesus? Like those are good, honest questions. Count the cost before you follow him because it's good to do that. Uh, and there are a number of good things that could happen when you count the cost. One, uh, if you ask enough of those questions, eventually uh, you'll start to realize following Jesus is going to cost me, right? It's going to be hard. Like, am I going to have to stop doing this? Is there a chance that my parents will hate me if I follow Jesus? Yeah, there's a chance. Is there, will I lose friends over this? Probably, but we can't guarantee it. Uh, those kind of questions are tough to answer, and once you've answered enough of them, it starts to hit you in the heart. It's going to cost me if I'm going to follow him. Now you've counted up the cost, and now you're ready to decide, am I going to follow Jesus wherever he takes me, or am I not going to follow Jesus wherever he takes me? At the same time, um, it's good because the questions you ask reveal what's precious to you, right? Whatever it is you're thinking about and asking about, am I gonna have to, you know, am I gonna have to stop smoking weed or whatever, whatever you're asking about, now you know that's really important to me. It's important enough to me that I wanna know whether I'm gonna have to do this or not do this before I come to follow Jesus, right? So now you know the things that are precious to you and now you can ask yourself, okay, what if the answer is yes? Like whatever the thing is, what if I do have to give it up? What if I do have to do the thing that I don't wanna do? 
am I willing to follow Jesus then, now that I know what's important to me? Now you're equipped to truly decide, are you ready to follow Jesus? Not Do you trust him or not? The fact of the matter is, with most people today, this question is almost always sexual these days. When I counsel people that are kind of in that situation, usually those are the kind of questions they're asking. An engaged couple, like I mentioned before, that wants to know, do we have to stop like before we get married? Is that for real? Or sometimes it's different things now, like a transgendered person that just honestly wants to ask, uh, is Jesus going to affirm the gender that I want him to affirm in me? Or is he going to tell me something that I don't want to hear about what gender I am? Just honest questions like that uh, and here's the question every time is or the answer every time is the same thing this text doesn't answer those particular questions I won't get into them but it does show that you aren't ready to follow him to the unknown place if you aren't ready to give up some of those things that are precious to you there, there's a blank check aspect to following Jesus to say whatever it is he calls for me I will give to him where he leads me I will follow I will go with him all of the way and the thing I want to say to you about it is it is so worth it to follow Jesus every day it is worth it he is so much more valuable and precious than anything you could have to give up to follow him. And so you can say with confidence on day one, I don't know where this journey's going, but I'm willing to take it because of who it is with, because he is completely worth it. That's one way that the call into the unknown shows up in our lives a lot. Uh, there's another way though, uh, and that is that you don't know the specifics of your individual calling the day that he calls you, right? You're coming to Jesus, but you don't know what he's going to do with you and where he's going to lead you. Uh, I think this is really clear in the Apostle Paul's life. Uh, he is, if you don't know who he is, he was once named Saul. He lived uh, after Jesus rose from the dead. He persecuted Christians for a long time. He rounded them up, threw them in jail, oversaw the execution of a really prominent Christian named Stephen. Uh, he's just a bad guy. And he's going to Damascus to do more of this stuff, to round up some more Christians, throw them in jail. And while he's there, Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and he converts. He goes from one who persecutes Christians to one who's being persecuted for Christ just in an instant. The vision is so glorious that he is blinded for quite a while. They have to lead him by the hand the rest of the way to the city of Damascus. And now he's following Jesus, but he's blind and he doesn't know if that's going to be forever or not. And he doesn't really know what the Lord's going to do with him. He's not going to be a Pharisee anymore. He's not going to persecute Christians anymore. Just kind of this big cloud of, I don't really know what he's going to do with me, but I'm following him. I know that much, right? Well, then the Lord does for him something he has not done for many of us. Only a few days into his Christian life, the Lord sends a man named Ananias and God speaks to him and says, I've chosen this person whose name is now Paul. I've chosen him to be my ambassador to the Gentiles. He's going to take the gospel outside the Jewish people to the rest of the world. He's the one who's going to do that. And then he says to Ananias the scariest thing. He says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Not, here's how much. Like, he's going to one day get to find out how much. 
And that's the life then that Paul leads. So early in his life, he gets to know kind of what the purpose is. Most of us don't really get to know kind of what am I here for early in our Christian lives. He does, but there is still so much mystery. And there's there's this question of, it sounds like I'm going to suffer a lot for Jesus. And I, I will know one day, but I do not know just yet. As time goes on, Uh, You know, he's sitting among people sometimes and the spirit will say, set apart Saul and Barnabas for this trip from which they'll spread the gospel that that I've appointed them for. And so then they learn what they're doing for the next couple years and then they go do that. But he does not know the end of his journey at the beginning of his journey. Eventually, he gets to go and proclaim the gospel before the emperor in Rome. uh, And he wants to go all the way to Spain, if you can imagine that far, to proclaim the gospel. And we don't even know if he made it all the way to Spain. The Bible just, the story just ends, and so we don't know how he dies. The point is, so little of where he will go is known in his life. But from day one, he's ready to follow, and he's faithful. And that's the state that a lot of us are in well. The specifics don't become clear until later on. So, so as you come to Jesus, know that you could be called to show faithfulness in your current job, in your current like scenario for the whole rest of your life and things could stay stable. Or in 10 years, you can be on the other side of the world doing something that you never saw yourself doing because that could be what Jesus done with you. About 10 years ago, I met a guy named Grayson and had no idea he would spend the next 10 years in India bringing the gospel to Hindus and Muslims in India. I had no idea when I, he had no idea either, but that's what the Lord did with him and his wife and he's back now. Lord just does awesome stuff like that and he doesn't tell you the end of the story at the beginning and honestly that's part of the fun of it if you trust him so that's the first thing that Abram's call shows us about our own call the specifics are not clear at first and part of faith is trusting him setting out not knowing where you're going but The second thing this story teaches us about our own calling is that the specifics do become clear over time. Eventually, the Lord does reveal the truth to us about what he'll do with us. So I think this becomes clear if we follow this story chronologically. So we learn from a sermon that's preached in Acts that this story isn't told chronologically. The the first few verses of verse 12 are a flashback of what happened in Ur. Uh, So Abram is living in Ur when he receives the call, uh, and then he goes out to Haran and then leaves from there. And if we turn back a little bit, we can see that. Uh, Turn back with me just the paragraph before chapter 12 and 11, just verses 31 and 32. And we can kind of see what goes on in order here. Excuse me. So it says this, he's received the call at this point, and then it says, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. Uh, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So... What actually happens is he gets the call while he's in Ur, 
And we know from Hebrews 11 that he at least sets out not knowing where he's going. So they set out, they're eventually going to Canaan, but he doesn't know that, right? And they actually live in this other settlement or city named Haran for quite a while, long enough even that Abram's father dies there. And it's not until Abram's father dies that then he leaves there. Now, we don't know exactly when the Lord told him where he would go, but the story is told in such a way that he doesn't even know until the end. Like he's in the land when the Lord says, I'll give you this land. So it's at least, we're at least led to believe in some ways that maybe it was not till the very end. Maybe this whole time that he's in Haran, he has no idea where he's going to go. Like he's, follow me to the place that I will show you. Okay, stop here. Okay, am I gonna stay here a long time? I don't know, am I gonna wake up tomorrow and leave again? Kind of like the Israelites in the desert, just wandering around and following around. No idea if this is the place where the promises are going to come true or if it's gonna be some other place. And is it, if it's some other place, well, what other place? North, south, east, well, am I gonna take a boat to get there? What's it gonna be like? No idea. He just has to wait and find out. And that is a state that God puts a lot of people in, especially people who have special callings into ministry. Sometimes for years, you're just saying things like, well, I know he has called me to do something, but I do not know what he has called me to do. And you just have to say that honestly. And sometimes you just feel like a fool saying that because you just don't know what the Lord's gonna do with you. And that's just the place that he has put you in. There's so many Christians who are wondering if the Lord, for instance, has called them to go to seminary. And if so, what seminary and what city and what part of the world? And then you think it's over then, but no, so many people in seminary that have no idea where the next place is that the Lord will take them. Even if they know what they want to do or what the Lord wants them to do, they have no idea where he will do it. And so they're just kind of huddled up in this school together, just like, a, like air traffic control or something, just like waiting to be sent out with no idea where they are going. And a few of you here wondering, what is God going to do with me next? Is he gonna keep us here in Indy? Is he gonna keep us here in Greenwood? Is he gonna send us somewhere else? Where is that gonna be if it's somewhere else? What are we going to do there? What are we going to do here? And we just, you just don't know any more than Abram probably knew. And the answer is not what you wanna hear, but it will settle your soul if you'll hear it. it. The answer is that he will show you when you get there, just like he did for Abram. He says, go to the place that I will show you. And sometimes for years, that is all you get. But the point is, it's not forever like that. That doesn't go on forever. And we can see that if we go back to verse, chapter 12 and we read verses five through seven. We'll see what happens next. This is after his father has died. It says, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and his, lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. And now the Canaanite then was in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. The answer comes. Eventually, the answers do come because he does have a plan for you. 
And here, uh, he says, this is the land, this is the place, and Abram gets to look at it, he gets to walk up and down it, he gets to survey, and he finally gets to know this is what the plan is. So the point is then, the specifics come in time, and you may be at a point in your life where you're looking back, knowing largely what God has done from you, or you may largely be looking forward, wondering what God is going to do with you. The point is still the same, God has a plan, you cannot change it, he is good and all of his ways are good. So all I can promise you is whatever he's going to do with you, all his ways are good. It'll be good. And it's hard. Whatever he's going to do with you, it's going to be hard. Count on it being hard. Count on it being good. And count on him being good because he's got a plan for you. That's the second thing we can learn from this story about our own calling. Final thing this morning that the call to Abram teaches us about, uh, about our own calling comes from comparing God's words to Abram with mankind's words to each other in the story beforehand. Now, if you've been walking through this whole thing with us, you kind of know where we are in the book, but you may not. And so the, the bigger picture here is the last few stories gave us the origin story of the world and the nations of the world. Like we learned how the nations of the world got here. And now we're transitioning to, we're learning about the origins of the people of God and how God's people got here. And so when we were learning about the origins of the nations of the world, there was a point where every nation, every person, every family on earth lived in one city and it was called Babel or Babel uh, and it was now, it's now called Babylon. And when we were there, you know, it was this beautiful picture of on one hand diversity and on one hand humanity uniting to do great things and even to reach out into the stars and to build a tower into heaven, which sounds oddly familiar. Uh, the problem was it was all done in pride and in vanity and it didn't please the Lord because we were doing it to really for ourselves. Well, I don't want to go too deep into that, but I want to point out one thing that we said to each other. If you flip back to chapter 11 or just scan back there if it's on the same page, verse 4, we're going to see why did we build that tower into heaven? Like, why did we do that? We actually said blatantly why we did it. Verse 4 says, they said, come and let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and here's why, and let us make for ourselves a name. Right. It, was, it was, let me build this awesome thing and put it on Instagram so everybody can see how awesome I am, right? It was like, let's make a name for ourselves by building something great. That's the pride and vanity that founded so much of, of human culture there that day. Okay, so, and it's not even a humble brag, like it's a brag brag, like they're not like pretending to be humble about it, they're just like, we will do this, it will make our name great. If you go back to chapter 12 now, we'll look at verse 2, and I think it'll stick out how different what God says to Abram is. He says, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. You see the difference? People of Babel say, let's make a great name for ourselves. Abram hears God say, I'm gonna make your name great. I'm the one who makes names rise. I'm the one who makes names fall. Trust me, I'm going to make your name great. Now, a good name isn't a bad thing to seek. It's a good thing to have. The Proverbs say that a good name is more valuable than great riches. The problem here isn't wanting to have a good name. Uh, the difference is, are we trying to make our names great or is 
God making our name great. And so the call that God extended to Abraham was to turn from making his own name great to trusting God and letting God make his name great. That's the difference. And that's the call that he extends to us as well. We, we no longer are we trying to show people how great we are. No longer are we high and lofty in our rhetoric and our speech. But we follow Jesus. We trust him. And we don't live in vanity, but we live in faith. Another way to ask it is, who's the one making your name great? Are you working tirelessly to give yourself a good reputation? Or are you just living life Jesus' way and letting the reputation take care of itself? Now, if the idea of, of vanity and pride, if you want to learn about those things, I preached a sermon on Babel a month or so ago, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, I won't go too deeply into that except to say that it, like, building great name for yourself equals bad. Like you're going to have a bad time, don't do that. If, if you're more curious than that, listen to that sermon. Uh, let's, I want to look instead because this text focuses on what it looks like when God makes our name great. Uh, let's answer that question. What does it look like? when we make our name great. Uh, in at least two ways, God makes the name of his people great. One, a lot of the time, and one, all of the time. I'll give you the, the first one first. Uh, most of the time, because of the way the world works, if you come to Jesus, you live his ways, you, you build your home life the way he says to build home life, you go to work and you work the way that he says to work, you generally, you know, you love others, you love God. Well, if you're living your life under the one who made the world, who knows how the world works, what happens is you get better at living life. Like you're just better at life because the creator of the whole thing is giving you counsel and teaching you how to do stuff. And so you get all sorts of blessings from that normally. You know, if you treat your wife well, your marriage is probably gonna go better. That's just how it works, right? And when you're following Jesus, things like that tend to work out well for you. One of the great blessings of that is you can earn a good name for yourself, right? Someone who treats his wife really, like a man who treats his wife really well, owns a business, treats his employees really well, uh, treats his customers incredibly well, this guy's going to have a pretty good name, isn't he? And so if you walk in those kind of ways, you're going to earn a good name for yourself. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. It doesn't mean people won't slander you. There's a lot of things it doesn't mean, but that's just generally how it works, right? That's not like a Christian prosperity thing. That's just you get better at life as you get wise. Uh, one of the best illustrations of this, I think, uh, the most familiar illustration for a lot of us is, is Chick-fil-A, the company. Uh, they're not like some miracle Christian prosperity story. Uh, they're largely run by Christian people who apply Christian principles in what they're doing, right? And even though there are people who try to speak out against them, against what they're doing, uh, you walk in and you just can't deny that the people are really nice and the chicken's really good, right? And so they have a really good reputation, despite all the flack against them out there. The reputation is still good. That's not some miracle story. That's just people who are looking to the Bible saying, how can we run a company in a way that's good and biblical? And it turns around to bless them and give them a good reputation and a good name. Same is true in life, too. You treat people well, love God, love others, and your reputation tends to get better. Uh, that's one way, at least, that following Jesus can lead to him making your name great because you're following his good ways now, practical. Trouble is, it doesn't always work out that way, right? Sometimes you'll get slandered and get a bad name because you follow Jesus, right? Sometimes people will lie about you. Sometimes uh, things don't work out the way they're supposed to and you're looking back and you're thinking, now wait a minute, I thought if I did all this stuff right, this stuff was gonna work out the way I wanted it to and it doesn't work out that way and you're looking back and you're confused. Well, the second 
way that it shows up in our lives will answer some of our burning questions about why things don't go the way they're supposed to, why we don't always gain a good name by following Jesus. And some of us have gained a worse name in our circles by following Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter five and we'll begin to see an answer there. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus speaking in in a sermon he's giving on a mount. And he just kind of hits that right on the head. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So sometimes that does happen, right? Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what he says. So you can, because of following Jesus, have your name reviled. It can happen because of your faithfulness to him. They reviled him, they're going to revile you too. So so what's the answer there? Like why does that happen and and how how is God going to make our name great? Well, the answer is in what he says here, rejoice for great is your reward in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Your name in this passing world is not all that you will ever have. Because what will happen is this very Jesus himself, he will come back, he will set up his kingdom here, he will rule and reign here, we will rule alongside him, he will get the name above all names and will get to rule along with him. That is the great name that is awaiting those who trust in him. So you can die a nobody, you can die your name reviled, no one knowing your name, but when he comes back, he has got a great name prepared for you. Abraham's name will be greater when Jesus comes back than it is today, even though we still talk about him today. This is true of Mary as well. If you think of Mary, who we've been thinking of for the last month, the mother of Jesus, she lives as a little girl. She's, she's, uh, you know, she's just a girl from somewhere, right? Like she's not an important person. Few people know her name. She would not have been remembered in history. We don't know what her sister's name is. You know, not an important person. The Lord appears to her and says, I'm going to make your name great, right? I'm gonna, you're going to be the mother of my son. He will save his people from their sins. All these awesome things. And here's what Mary says in response. She says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble estate of his bond slave. So she knows how small she is. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And here we are, like generation, 100 generations later probably, saying what a blessed, just blessing the mother of Jesus. Like how glad we are that the Lord did that through her. And she was just a girl from somewhere. She, she wasn't anybody important. So then she goes on to say, and his mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has exalted those who are humble. The Lord can do this. He can make the name of the small great like that. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. So some of you are probably hungering, wondering, okay, I have followed Jesus long. He has not made my name great. Like he says he's going to do that and he has not done that. Well, wait, because he can do it in an instant and when he comes back, he will. The people who have reviled you, the people who have looked down on you and thought you insignificant will wish they had not done so when you are made great in the coming kingdom of Jesus. I'll give you one example of this. Uh, I said earlier, right, that following Jesus' ways can often lead to like, you know, better things because you're better at living life. Uh, So, uh, for instance, uh, if you're a young person, um, let's say you're a young man, uh, if you live life in Jesus' way, Um, it's likely that living that way will land you a God-fearing spouse, right? And you'll find a God-fearing wife. And then if you're married to this God-fearing spouse and you do what married people do, it's likely you're gonna have kids come along, right? And then if you raise those kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, it's likely that those kids will grow up and they will bless your name, right? This is kind of the course of the way things go. Uh, But like half the people that I know, that's not actually the direction their life went, even though they're following Jesus, right? It's possible to follow Jesus and just never find a spouse. Or it's possible to try having children together and you just don't wind up with children. And then you're looking back saying, well, where were the kids that were gonna rise up and and bless my name and make my name great? And then they're, they're not there. Uh, There are many single women in their 30s right now that I've talked to that look back and think, well, is the reason I'm still single because I wouldn't compromise on Jesus' principles? Like if I had just kind of given that one guy what he wanted or dressed a little more scandalously, like could I have drawn a husband and I wouldn't be alone here now trying to just sort out why things didn't go the way they were supposed to go. Well, the Lord has a word for people everybody in that situation is like, okay, I did life the way you're supposed to do and it didn't go the course that it was supposed to go. Uh, He gives it through his word to one particular group of people called eunuchs. Uh, Eunuchs were people who through their service and and what they were doing, uh, basically it it sounds terrible to say that their bodies had been mutilated to the point that they could not possibly ever have kids, if you understand what I mean. Uh, The Lord gives a word to them through the prophet Isaiah and here's what he says. He says, For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, and the important part, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and here it is, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. So he says to everyone who who has followed him faithfully and things just haven't gone according to plan, they haven't gone right, and you're wondering why your name is not as great as it was supposed to be, he says, I have a name better than that for you, waiting for you, if you will just hold fast to my covenant to the end. A name so great that we will judge angels with authority in heaven. We will say, you did this and you served me and I didn't even know you did it. Well done, good and faithful servant. We will say that to angels as we judge. That's how great your name is going to be in heaven if you hold fast to that covenant. That is worth looking forward to and you can die a nobody now and have that coming to you. So the point is, If you're answering God's call, if you're trusting him to make 
your own name great. He may do it now through the wisdom of following Jesus. He may not, but he will do it in the future, just as he has done and will do for Abram. Let me just give you one way that this would affect life, and then we'll move on to taking the Lord's Supper together. Uh, This difference between vanity and faith can affect even why you do good things, right? Do you know that it's possible to do good works so that your name will be better, right? So that you'll get a better reputation. So people will see you do the good thing that you do and say, oh, there's a good guy right there. You can do good works in vanity. And Jesus actually confronts that in the same sermon that I read from a minute ago, because many people in his day would publicly give offerings to the poor so that they would be praised as a very generous and, and kind person, but they didn't actually love the poor. Well, you can do that out of a kind of babble-like desire to make your name great. And sometimes it works. Like people will actually praise you when you do good works in front of people. But this is what Jesus says to it. He says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they might be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand to know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Can you see the difference? Giving in front of people for a good name versus giving in secret, nobody knows about it, and the Lord says, I'll reward you. I'll make your name great for doing that. That's the difference between faith in Jesus to make your name great and vanity working to make your own name great. That will trickle through every area of your life. Pride says, I will build a good name for myself. Faith says, I will do what Jesus says. He can make my name great if he wants to. So that is what the Lord, some of what the Lord is calling you to do today. Next week, I hope to come back to you and unfold a few more things that that text says about the calling God places on us and what it means to live a Christian life. Uh, For now, we're going to look together to the Lord's Supper. Uh, We're going to spend some time together uh, just cherishing the signs of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, uh, which were broken and were shed for us. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to extend the call to you as plainly as I can now. See these symbols. If you're not a follow Jesus don't take them with us but watch see this bread broken and the cup poured for us and see us take it and and what I want you to understand is that his body was broken for the people around you and is offered to you as well his blood was shed for the people around you and is offered to you as well and he just reaches out to you saying I offer you forgiveness through my broken body and my shed blood come and follow me let me ask the deacons to come forward while I pray for us